This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by Molecule. Molecule is reimagining the future of clean air, starting with the air purifier. For 10% off your first air purifier, visit molekule.com and enter the promo code FOOL10 at checkout. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Wednesday, January 15th, Wildcard Wednesday, and we are digging into the Casper Sleep Company. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined by the just okay Brian Feroldi. Brian, I'm having a little bit of fun with you there, man. How you doing? I'm doing great. It has been a while since I've been on the show because, as you've known, I am in the middle of a massive home renovation. So my time has been supremely focused on that. But you guys have been keeping the show go without me. So good to, good to talk to you, though. Yes. And you not being on the show is no reflection of your value as a contributor. I, I make fun of you with the just okay because Brian and I were editing our Google Doc as we were going through our outline. And I was dropping our intro and our ad reads and everything in and kind of sprucing it up before we went into the studio. And he edited out something that I'd set up as his title and said, The Amazing Brian Feroldi. And I said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring him down to the just okay, Brian Feroldi, and make him prove himself <laughs> yeah. on the show today. Uh, but I'm happy to have you back. And I'm happy to be talking about Casper. This is, this is so fun. This is a business that a ton of people know. I love doing these deep dive prospectus shows on consumer-facing brands. Um, I'm sure a lot of people know this company already. They've probably seen the marketing somewhere. But for the folks that don't, this is a sleep company. They've been around since 2014. And they are kind of synonymous with the online bed business, Brian. Yeah, they are uh, a big, big, big into the the wellness trend of people are actually focusing on getting a good night's sleep. And we've seen more and more research come out and more and more celebrities are endorsing just how important it is to get your full night's sleep. So this company plays right into that trend, uh, which positions them nightly, uh, nicely. And they've also been spending uh, heavily on advertising over the last couple of years to really get their brand out there. So as you said, always fun to do a deep dive when you f- take a first look at a company's financials. Yeah, they talk a lot about the idea of the sleep economy in their prospectus. We're going to dig a little bit into that. But this is a direct-to-consumer company, and what this business has done is very similar to what Warby Parker has done and what we've seen a lot of other very successful consumer brands do, where it used to be something where it was manufactured somewhere, it was made by someone else, available in a big-box store, and there are markups along the way for all of the middlemen that come with that. Um, a lot of these companies are hopping in and disrupting the supply chain, disrupting the distribution for these types of things. And and then ultimately deciding to partner up with some of these retail companies as well. That's what we're seeing with Casper. They kind of came onto the scene early on in the online bed market um, and established themselves as one of the major players. They sell primarily online. They have about 60 retail stores, and they do have retail partners, including Amazon, Costco, and Target. Um, with some of that background out of the way, I want to hit quickly on what you were talking about, Brian, with the idea that it is a kind of wellness-oriented company. At least that's how they're positioning themselves. They talk about the three pillars of wellness. That's fitness, nutrition, and now increasingly they're trying to convince people that sleep is a part of that. And I think there's some merit to that. 
Yeah, I, I totally think so, too. I mean, you've seen people like uh, Ariana Huffington and Tom Brady really going the extra mile to ensure that they get a full night's sleep. And I don't know about you, but in the last decade, I've placed an emphasis on trying to make sure that I have an exact routine at, at uh, bedtime to make sure I get my eight hours each night. So this is a trend that I don't think is going away. And that is something that Casper plays directly into. My night routine is total anarchy, Brian. I, I am a night owl and I am regularly up until like 1.30 or 2 in the morning. Like the way that some people feel at 6 a.m. where like the whole world is in front of them and it's nice and quiet and they can do whatever they want. That's how I feel late at night. That's often when I'm preparing my podcast notes. Um, so I am not necessarily the market for Casper in that sense, but I do have a bed and I will need a new bed at some point. Um, so maybe I will become the market for them. Uh, as you might expect with a company that is private and is near that unicorn status, or I think they just recently hit unicorn status, some pretty impressive growth rates for this business. Yeah, so we've seen um, revenue growth of about 45% um, between 2016 and 2018, which uh, is really strong for a direct-to-consumer company that's selling, again, bedding and bedding products. So revenue in uh, 2018 was $358 million, uh, and the split was about $310 million direct-to-consumer and about $50 million uh, through those partnership channels that uh, you mentioned before. So pretty good growth. Uh, however, uh, through the first nine months of 2019, we actually saw their growth rate decelerate quite substantially. So through the first 20, uh, nine months of, of, of the year, revenue only grew 20% to about uh, $312 million. So tough to see that they're already seeing uh, sales, sales growth decline. And when we talk about IPOs, we so often say, like, the the management at this company is deciding when this company is going public. And very often, you start to see the timeline for that speed up as growth slows down. And it doesn't surprise me that this is something that they're thinking about now, looking at the financials and seeing that 20% growth. You wonder, though, is that going to dip into the teens, or are they going to kind of hit cruising altitude with 20% growth? TBD on that. Um, looking over at the balance sheet, they have about $55 million of cash available and about $40 million in debt. So, like decent amount of coverage there, um, as you might expect with a high growth early stage business. They've only been in business for about five or six years. They're currently losing money. Yeah. So the net loss was $92 million in 2018. So that $55 million they have sitting in the bank won't last that long. Uh, through the first uh, nine months of 2019, they're on pace for about, uh, they, they, they lost $67 million. And uh, once they do go public, they do plan on using a portion or, uh, of the proceeds that they gain to pay off their debt balance and, and will likely be uh, debt-free um, uh, post the IPO, which is definitely something that I lot to see. But um, there's no doubt that this company needs a capital raise uh, sometime soon. So it is no surprise to see that they are going public now. While growth rates have been slowing down for this business, margins have been moving in the right direction. Uh, more recently, margins of 51% on the gross margin side, up from somewhere in the mid-40s in 2018. So it's nice to see that they're enjoying leverage, they're enjoying um, some scale with their business. That's fantastic. There are some concerning business metrics, though, when I look at that revenue number, because those numbers you were talking about before, Brian, that's a net revenue number. It's not a gross revenue number. 
Yeah. So one of the um, problems that plagues this industry and really anybody that sells anything online is uh, returns. When uh, when you buy a, a a mattress from them, you know they do give you a very generous time to get to uh, experience it in your house. Uh, it's a hundred day trial period. Um, but if somebody for whatever reason, chooses to not keep it after that point, they can return it to the company. And r through the first nine months of 2019, we saw that about 20% of uh, their 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 revenue was actually uh, ret from returns. So that's why their net result uh, was the uh, 312 million that we saw before. And that that return number has climbed a little bit. So it used to be 15% and it jumped to 20% uh, recently. And that can be a real big problem uh, if, if that number continues to uh, climb. So they, they need to have a really sharp focus on keeping the return number as low as possible. There's a natural amount of return that's just going to happen in retail. And like you said before, especially in online retail, what I think is a little concerning about that is there was a piece that came out in the Wall Street Journal in December looking at these people and you see know, it's kind of hard to get a sense of how big this community people are but they basically take advantage of these online mattress store policies to buy and return mattresses every 3 months effectively never paying for a mattress and it sounds ludicrous to churn through mattresses like that but because there are so many market players out there they're able to do it and because these policies are kind of table stakes for anyone in the business consumers are able to do that and as insane as it sounds, I know someone that did this. It was someone who was in a short-term rental spot. They were in a city for the summer, and they didn't want to have to buy a bed or move a bed, and so they just took advantage of the 100-day window. And I'm not advocating for that. It creates a lot of waste. But a lot of these businesses have very accommodating trial periods. And I wonder if this is something that they'll ramp down in the future to make it a little bit more reasonable, because it's such a big part of their top line at this point. They, they might have to, but I do think that uh, one tricky spot that they're in is it's hard to – there's no way to test out the mattress if you're just buying it online and you're never visiting uh, one of their stores. So one of the ways that they get people to actually take action is by offering such a generous um, return and war warranty period. So I don't know if they really have the ability to ramp that down because they've made it such a core part of their brand um, up until this point. But to your point, it is something that management does need to focus on. And once they are public, um, they're going to get hammered on that probably on every conference call from here on out. So they might have to. But yeah. uh, that puts them in a little bit of a tricky position. You could see a future where they shorten it to 30 days or 45 days or something like that. I think 100 days does make it long enough that it invites that kind of um, not so great consumer behavior from some people. And as you see that rise, it just becomes more and more of an issue. You know, those growth rates that we were talking about would be even more impressive. If the returns had not also spiked, you know that's going to be eating into some of that growth. Um, we talked about it before, but this is a really big consumer brand and kind of the the main online bed company. When most consumers are asked, you know, like who is the direct to consumer play here, and that's because they've been so good at social media. Yeah, they they that's really the the moat that I see for this for this company is really they're so good at uh, promoting their social media presence and they may hit gold a couple of years ago when Kylie Jenner uh, posted that on Instagram that uh, she got a Casper bed and their website pretty much instantly uh, went down from this huge torrent of, of, of um, requests that they got and they also have some some good numbers uh, behind that to show that there is some staying power to their brand so their net promoter score which is a key key term that uh, we look for which basically asks people how how likely likely are you to recommend this product uh, to a friend and they 
count. They, it's a plus one if it's a nine or a ten, and it's a minus one if it's a seven or below. And this company has a net promoter score of 60, which is just excellent. Uh, so that means that their uh, their consumers really like their brand, uh, really like their products, and they're and they're getting good uh, word of mouth. Um, and they also have. 50% of the share of voice in their industry, uh, which is, you know, as you said, if you said name a direct-to-consumer mattress company, Casper is the number one answer. And they actually have a two, 2x share when compared to the next closest uh, competitor. So that does give them uh, a little bit of, of insulation and a little bit of, of, of a moat, but definitely not the widest moat that we've talked about in this show before. And, and they're going to have to maintain that moat because this business is showing that you know it resonates with consumers and more and more people are paying attention to it in their perspectives they talk a lot about the idea of the sleep economy and you can do what you want with that kind of catch-all buzzword but the reality is it's sizable all the different markets that they either currently play in or could play in in the future uh, tallies over 400 billion dollars now the current addressable amount of that is far less for Casper I think it's about 70 billion dollars but when you start seeing big numbers like that and you start seeing success in a direct-to-consumer model, it's going to invite a lot of competition and a lot of interest. Yeah, and that's and that's a problem that this company is going to have to deal with forever, is that uh, there is... Uh, th- this this market is huge and it is growing. To your to your point, when when I first read 430 billion dollar global sleep market, I kind of did a double take. Like, are they making that up? That is so big, I, it's almost hard to believe. Um, but when you actually look at their actual current um, addressable marketplace, more of the tune of uh, 60 67 billion dollars, and that does include um, the bedding, mattress, um, the pillowcases, as well as all kinds of um, paraphernalia around that relates to sleep, such. Which is sound, sense, sleep tracking device. So they're kind of taking all of that in. But uh, $67 billion is is still a, a a massive number when compared to the $300 million that they pulled in. So if this company can continue to take market share, which is what the thesis depends on, uh, there is a long way for them to go. The current pitch is that you know we are selling mattresses, we are selling basic accessories that you would expect in the bedroom, linens, um, and some sleep products. But that market is pretty new, and there might be some sleep technology that we're able to roll in, especially as we become the go-to spot and we really build long-term relationships with a lot of our consumers. A lot of that is future ambition right now. At core, they're selling mattresses, and they're selling things that you put on mattresses. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Um, Some of the other stuff to look for in terms of growth, uh, the company has about 60 stores at the moment. They could see having about 200 in North America alone, and they're currently in about seven countries, could expand to about 20 medium to long term. So there's some global expansion opportunities, there's some new product opportunities, and we've talked about how gross margin is expanding a little bit. You could see that probably continue to happen for a little bit longer. Yeah, there, there is no shortage of growth opportunities um, right now, and they are investing aggressively in their R&D to kind of build out their presence in numerous uh, sleep categories. So the company does have a substantial opportunity ahead of it. We've harped on just how competitive this landscape is, and when you have a lot of players in the space, I think the the tally I saw was when they entered the market there were 60 online direct-to-consumer bed companies. Um, There are now about 175, five or six years later. So as that market gets more and more crowded, there are a lot more people vying for those consumer dollars. And that means that to keep where they are as the market leader, they need to spend a lot of money. We're seeing that in their financials. 
yes, this company is spending aggressively uh, on sales and marketing to acquire customers. Uh, so through the first nine months of 2019, uh, they spent $114 million uh, just on sales and marketing. And throughout their, since their inception, they have, they have acquired about 1.4 million uh, total customers. Um, so they are spending aggressively. I think that is the right move to make sure that they are the mindshare leader in their category, especially with so much competition uh, that not only already existed, but that's actively coming online. So they need to spend that money. It, it is uh, showing uh, some success, but there's no doubt that this comp- that acquiring customers at this business is very expensive. The hope for them longer term is that as they build these really great relationships with customers, they have customers come back. And we've seen companies be very successful in spaces where, frankly, legacy players have taken for granted the consumers that they have, and mostly because they don't have options. You know, we've say what you will about Uber and Lyft, but they are solving a pain point for most consumers. You know, the taxi experience generally is not awesome. Um, you know, in in Boston, I remember being there six years ago, seven years ago, when Lyft and Uber were really just getting off the ground. And it was mandated by the city that all credit card or all cabs would have credit card processing abilities. And you'd get into a cab and of course they'd want cash and you know they'd say the thing was broken. And so when you have a company that addresses pain points, in the case of Casper, it's the classic mattress sale of, you know, you're not sure what you're getting at one store versus the other. There are different uh, names for each mattress. It's it's impossible to comparison shop. Moving some of that friction away, moving it to a less high-pressure selling environment, there's a lot of perks that come with that, um, and they're hoping that they can build that into a long-term relationship with their customers. What we've seen over the first nine months of 2019 is that of their online direct-to-consumer sales, 20% were repeat customers, which lends some credence to that. Um, what I think is particularly interesting is the company's only been around for five or six years. And I generally think that the mattress upgrade cycle is probably less than, or probably more than five or six years. Yeah, I would think that a mattress would be a, a ten plus year, uh, something that you buy that often. And to to your point, they do have twenty percent um, repeat customers, as they say. However, we don't know. If that 20% is people coming back to buy, say, a second mattress from them, or if somebody counts as a repeat customer if they buy a pillowcase from them a couple of months later. So it is good to see that people are uh, interacting with the brand more than once, because as we talked just, just talked about, acquiring customers, convincing them to give Casper a try is incredibly expensive. Um, but you cannot say that this company has recurring revenue, which is something that I personally look for in any any business. So, do they have the potential to grow their repeat customer? Absolutely. But from what we've seen thus far, uh, I'm not that impressed. Yeah, I think it's a little early to know for sure. There are metrics moving in the right direction. That that repeat customer number has climbed. I think it was about 16% uh, a year or two prior, now 20%. So, we're seeing it move in the right direction. But we're a little bit just too early in the business to know for sure. Um, all right, Brian, we are going to talk about Casper's management and take some questions from listeners on Twitter on the back half of the show. Before we get over to that discussion, though, this episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by Molecule. Molecule is reimagining the future of clean air, starting with the air purifier. The company's technology has been personally effective and verified by science, but most importantly, it's been tested by real people. Molecule has given allergy and asthma sufferers around the country an all-new experience. 
Breakthrough Pico technology across a range of products provides a solution for the entire home when it comes to air purification. No matter the size of your room, you can choose the option that's best for your space, whether that be the Molecule Air for large rooms or the Molecule Air Mini for smaller rooms. Here's a New Year's resolution for you. Stop breathing contaminated air. We make a lot of resolutions for improvement this time of the year. How about improving the air you breathe? The American Lung Association says more than 140 million Americans are living with unhealthy air. Don't be one of them. The Molecule technology replaces technology from nearly a century ago. The HEPA filter technology that's been used to clean your air was developed in the 1940s, and there haven't been many major innovations since. Molecule has created a new filtration system that doesn't just collect pollutants on antiquated filters, but destroys them on a molecular level. And boy, does it work. Molecule has sent its air purifiers to Full HQ, and I think it has been in a dozen different Full homes at this point. Analyst Jim Mueller had it for a couple nights and immediately placed an order to get himself one. For 10% off your first air purifier, visit molekule.com and enter the promo code FOOL10 at checkout. That's molekule.com and promo code FOOL10. All right, Brian, we can't talk about a business without talking about management and company culture. We love to see management that's well-liked and also has some skin in the game. We don't know a ton about the current equity stakes for management uh, when it comes to Casper, but we got some information. Yeah, so Casper was started um, uh, again in 2014 by five uh, co-founders. Uh, one of them, Philip Krim, is the current um, CEO, and uh, three of the other co-founders are still um, in the involved with the company. So one's the chief strategy officer, one's the chief product officer, um, and another one is an unnamed um, executive. But it is good to see that uh, four of the five co-founders are still active at the business. Uh, we did do it through the S1, and uh, it was disappointing to see that we do not know uh, how much stock each of these uh, co-founders own, um, but we do know that the CEO must hold five times his base salary in stock, and the other executives do have to hold one time their own base salary in stock. But it will be interesting once we get more information to see how much of this business these these founders still own. That's the one disadvantage of doing some of these prospectus shows immediately after the S one drops. We have some of the details, but of course, some of the tables, some of the information left blank because we don't have all of the details yet. As we get closer to the IPO, we'll get a better sense of what that looks like. Brian, you also took a look at the Glassdoor scores for Casper. Yeah, so Glassdoor is a uh, great place to go to just get a quick glimpse of what what uh, employees say of working at the business. What we saw, I would I would describe as okay, not great. So currently, um, employees give the, the company 3.5 stars out of 5. Uh, the only trouble is a year ago, that was 4.6 stars out of 5. So the, the trend is going in the wrong direction. And a lot of times, uh, when a company goes from being a private company to a public company, having you know to report consistently really changes the culture and makes it a tougher place to work. It's possible that that number could continue to trend downward from here. Um, so that's something for investors to definitely keep an eye on. Uh, as far as the CEO, he gets an 86 approval rating from employees. That's generally pretty good, but only about half of employees, 52%, would actually recommend working at the company uh, to a friend. So, Glassdoor scores, I would generously describe as 
okay. Yeah, the reason we focus on the Glassdoor scores is because talent is so important for a lot of these businesses. You know, you don't want to be constantly hiring and bringing new people in. And so when you see a business that's well run with management that's well liked and employees that would recommend working there, it probably means they're able to retain employees. They don't have to spend nearly as much on talent acquisition and training and bringing people in. All the disruption that comes with that kind of stuff. Um, Brian, I know digging through the S1, you had a couple other things you wanted to point out, and then we're going to flip it over to a listener question. Yeah, one thing I caught uh, that that caught my eye in the risk section was that uh, the the company, quote unquote, had a material weakness in its internal controls over financial reporting related to uh, operating expenses. Uh, specifically, they overstated in the past their accrued liabilities, sales and marketing, and G&A expenses. So it is good to see that they caught that and called that out, uh, because if they didn't catch that, uh, if, if they had to, say, restate that uh, once they were public, boy, would there be a scandal related to um, financial reporting being insufficient. Um, so it is good to see that they caught it and they addressed it before they went public, but that is something that caught my eye, and that is a yellow flag when you see something wrong with the accounting of a business. Yeah, hopefully they got that under wraps and they've managed to figure all that out. Um, I mentioned that we were going to be talking about Casper on today's show on Twitter, uh, and just as a reminder, if you don't follow us on Twitter, at MF Industry Focus, you can catch us there. Um, so, we have a question from Sam, and Sam asks, just how big and differentiated is Casper when it's selling products meant to last 10 years and the space has exploded with competition. Is the plan to expand into more betting? How justified is this unicorn valuation? And I think this is an awesome question from Sam. We touched on some of the stuff with expansion, um, but I think we'll hit some of the other parts of this where, you know, if you look at the sleep space, it it kind of reminds me a little bit of what happened with meal kits, where um, it, it was pretty clear that there was a recipe that people could follow. Blue Apron set the standard with creating the space, creating a great consumer experience, having a certain feel to the look and the the feel of the brand, and then a lot of people flooded that space. You know, there's Purple Carrot, there's Green Chef, there are all these companies that came in and saw that there was a viable market there, and that made it really hard for Blue Apron. And uh, it's it's been borne out in their financials. They've had a really tough time bringing customers in and keeping them. And I wonder if some of the unit economics there and the marketing spend is going to catch up to Casper in the same way, Brian. Yeah, it's totally possible that that could happen. And it, it, I think a Casper, the success of Casper up until last point, has proven that they're they're is a business here. There is consumer demand um, for this type of product, but. To, uh, to Sam's point, what is it that separates Casper from the competition? Why will consumers choose this brand? The best answer that we could come up to from this point is that existing customers really seem to like their Casper mattress, so the company appears to make a really uh, good product that people um, do, do like. But what's to prevent um, companies from entering the space and steadily chipping away at that market share for that this company is trying to build. I don't have a great great answer there. Um, they do have the mind share. They do have a social media presence. So you could say that they are the top dog and first mover in in the in in this market, which could um, keep them insulated from competition for a bit. But that is a big question mark that I have about this company. And as we've seen with, as we talked about uh, at the top of the show, with their revenue, we saw the revenue growth go from fifty, almost fifty percent uh, for three years, down to twenty percent last year. So that, to me, is at least a hint that their moat, that their brand moat, might not be as strong as investors need it to be to justify a billion-dollar valuation. 
What's tough here, too, is it's not just other upstarts hopping into the space and doing the classic direct-to-consumer disruption. There are companies that are either owned or backed by some major mattress players, some legacy companies. And so, you're not just going up against other companies that have little funding and are kind of running kind of scrappy. You're you're running up against some big industry giants that have brands that look and feel a lot like what you're trying to do, which is just going to be tough. Yeah, yeah, totally. And uh, and as we said before, this is a company that's only been around for a couple of years, and it's been a great couple of years for the economy and uh, the stock market in in general. So, what happens to this company's financials if we hit tough times, if a, if a recession comes? I mean, I think that a mattress is a purchase that can be delayed indefinitely if if need be. So, I have a lot of questions uh, to, in my mind right now. That's not to say that Casper can't continue to grow. It can't. It doesn't make a great product or anything like that. Uh, for me, I just have more questions about the long-term um, growth potential of this business than anything else. So, to, to me, this is a stock that I will watch with interest, but won't be entering my portfolio. How about you, Dylan? Uh, I'm kind of in the same boat, Brian. I want to see exactly where they come out valuation-wise. The the metric that I think Sam should track here, if Sam's looking to kind of get a sense of you know our customers coming back, is that working? Is that return number that we're getting on customers specifically from the direct to consumer channel? And you know that number was twenty percent recently. Again, we don't know the product mix for that twenty percent, but it's a sign that people really like the brand. They like the products that they're getting. Um, we you know they're not all going to be mattress sales but if their whole pitch is we're selling mattresses and we're building out this wonderful suite of kind of sleep accessories that really complement that business well and they can cater to those uh, customers very well especially with products that maybe have lower return rates than their mattresses um, they might really be onto something there it seems like they have a great consumer product it's just a matter of making sure that the business lines up and becomes investable the numbers that i've seen in terms of valuation put the current valuation around 1.1 billion based on some of their past funding rounds they will probably be looking to get a premium on that when they hit the public markets but that's going to be north of four times sales they're spending a lot of money on SGNA i will say the gross margins for the company at about 50% are a lot higher than i thought they'd be brian well, that's that, that's good to hear. Uh, certainly not the SaaS gross margins <laughs> that we're, we're we're talking about, but it is good to see that they are consistently growing that number. And if you dig through their S one, they do make it clear that they're going to make investments in um, their manufacturing and supply chain to continue to. Um, fund their future growth as well as hopefully push that number higher. We didn't get a number for how high they eventually think that that can grow, but yes, as of right now, given their scale, a 50% gross margin certainly is encouraging. It's a business that I think I'm going to be rooting for. I love when people come in and disrupt legacy companies um, and and legacy industries and create something that's a much better consumer experience. Right now, it looks like a hard business, and I think there are just easier businesses out there that are a little bit more investable at this point. We'll get a firmer sense of all the numbers when we get the final prospectus and they set a date for their IPO. So We're going to come back to this, of course, but um, I I think that's kind of the catch-all for how I'm thinking about that. Anything we left out, Brian? Yeah, I would just say in general, whenever we talk about, whenever we dig through an S ones, one of the things that uh, I personally do is I, I, uh, I'm not, I'm not like Joey. I don't buy uh, any IPO, no matter how great it looks, on day one because when a company goes public, things change, the culture change. Wall Street has a number that this company has to hit, and can they live up to those expectations, or was management looking for an exit when they went public? 
you don't ever, you don't know those answers until you watch the company for two, three, four, or more uh, quarters. So um, I'll be watching this company, but I won't be a buyer on day one for sure. I think that's a particularly good point when you see the growth rate decelerate as much as it has. I think that that's a great cautionary tale and just something to keep in mind because um, you want to get a better sense of where that number's going with such a steep drop off um, in just a year's time. So um, I think that'll wrap our Casper discussion there. But uh, we got some listener love via iTunes reviews. And just as a reminder uh, to folks listening to the show, we love getting the iTunes reviews. And if anyone gives us a five-star review on iTunes, I'm happy to read it on the show, especially if it's got a question or a comment or something that we can address. Uh, And so Sean wrote in and said, I'm a college student and listen to this every day on my way to class. So helpful and by far the most interesting investing and market podcast out there. And that's awesome. Thank you, Sean. Thank you for writing in. And I love these kind of notes because, Brian, to me, it is so fun to get a sense of where people are listening to these shows. You know, we record these. I'm in the studio, you're in your home office. And sometimes it feels like we just kind of throw these out into the ether and that's it. You know, they just kind of disappear. Um, I know we have a listener, uh, a regular Motley Fool podcast listener uh, who works on a dairy farm and plugs in and listens to our podcast while he's out milking the cows. And I think it's really awesome for us to be in his ear while that's happening. Cool to know that we're in Sean's ear as he's walking to class. Yeah, have a good class, Sean. (laughs) And it's awesome that as a college student, Sean's getting into the investing game. I think that's fantastic. And we have one other five-star review, and that's from Ski Diamond, which is a little little poke at me as someone who's living in the Mid-Atlantic right now. I can't get out onto the mountain. The weather's been way too warm. Uh, But Ski Diamond writes, I like the intro Love the closing song, Keep Up the Fun. So there you go, Austin. We were talking about some negative feedback for the new intro. Now we got some positive love. It seems like it's a little polarizing, but people are starting to get used to it. And I guess we got to keep playing Checks and Balances by Burke because that's been getting a lot of love from listeners as well. We'll play out today's show with that. Um, Brian, thank you so much for hopping on today. Anything else before I let you go? No, it was good to be invited back after two months, Dylan. you got to think of me more often, I guess. Wow, I didn't realize you had it circled on your calendar. Well, you you pitched me a bunch of episodes, so I know we're going to be coming back to you soon. Thanks so much for hopping on today's show, Brian. Always good to chat with you, Dylan. (laughs) All right, listeners, that's going to do it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or you want to reach out and say, hey, shoot us an email over at industryfocus at fool.com. We love getting ideas for shows. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter at MFIndustryFocus. If you want more stuff, not necessarily podcast stuff, but just additional content from The Fool, head over to our YouTube channel. We've got tons of investing basic content over there. Great for beginners. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for all his work behind the glass today. We're going to play out with that song I mentioned before, Checks and Balances, by our full-time fool, Burke Ingrafia. For Brian Froldy, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening, and fool on. I've got a million dollars. It's hypothetical. Large amount in my bank account, it's parenthetical The money I'm made of is theoretical So in theory I've got it good My fat wallet is on a diet My balance sheet is lopsided My income statement is keeping silent But let's keep one thing understood I need checks I need balances, life's a mess With financial challenges, checks and balances When things get tough, do you do it for money or do you do it for love? My cold hard cash is soft and tropical My deep pockets are merely topical 
I hit the big time, it was microscopical, but don't you get it, I am no fool. I own a bank, I call him Piggy, brought home the bacon, he got a little wiggy. Cracked him open, what a pity, his inner life was pitiful. I need checks, I need balances, life's a mess. With financial challenges, checks and balances When things get tough, do you do it for money? Or do you do it for love? I know a cheapskate always has a headache Trying to get something for free None more wiser is the miser Always lives in misery I'm cashing in on Triple coupon Soup kitchen's calling Saying the soup's on I sing for my supper And get my groove on I still know how to have fun I need checks I need balances Life's a mess With financial challenges Checks and balances When things get tough Do you do it for money? Or do you do it for love? I know a cheapskate always has a headache Trying to get something for free None more wiser is the miser Always lives in misery I own a bank I call him Piggy Brought home the bacon He got a little wiggy Cracked him open What a pity His inner life was pitiful I need checks I need balances, life's a mess With financial challenges, checks and balances When things get tough, do you do it?